Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're there in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. And uh, we are moving through the book of 1 Corinthians on Wednesday night, just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, tonight we are starting chapter 10. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, the, the chapter is not a very long chapter, um, you know, not extremely long, but there's a lot in this chapter. So we're probably going to spend a couple of weeks, maybe even three weeks. We'll see uh, how it goes. Uh, but I want you to notice uh, in this chapter, we learn about some uh, lessons from bad examples. And the examples are so good, uh, you know, I want to go back to the Old Testament and kind of show you several things. So we're going to make it through a couple of the bad examples this week and then a couple of bad examples next week. But I'm already getting ahead of myself. Before we even get into that, let me just give you some introductory uh, statements there in chapter number 10. Look down at verse number 1. The Bible says this, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And this is what the chapter is about. It's about uh, using the Old Testament uh, church, the congregation there, as an example. But I want you to notice, just, just by way of introduction, I'm not preaching on this, but I want to cover it because it's there. Um, I want you to notice that this passage teaches us something about the identification in baptism, because it says in the last part of verse one, it says, "All passed through the sea, right?" And that's talking about when the children of Israel crossed uh, the Red Sea. Remember, they came out of Egypt and they uh, God parted the the Red Sea and they they passed through it. Look at verse two, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And I want you to notice that the Bible says here that when they were baptized, and you got to keep in mind that the Old Testament uh, nation of Israel was a type or a picture of salvation. Because what you have there is you had the people in bondage in Egypt, and you had uh, Moses who came in and brought them out of bondage, and there's a picture there of salvation. And as they uh, went through the Red Sea there, as they went through there, the Bible says that that was a picture or a type of baptism. It says that they were baptized Unto Moses. Now, there's a couple of things that you need to understand. When we get baptized, baptism identifies us, of course, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your place there in 1 Corinthians 10. That's our text for tonight. But go to Romans chapter number 6 and look at verse number 3. Just if you flip one uh, page, one book back, Romans chapter 6 and verse number 3. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, the Bible says this Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized, notice what it says, into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That, notice these words, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. I want you to notice that when you get baptized, you are uh, picturing the likeness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When somebody stands in the water and they have the, the water cross their body, that is a picture of the cross. When they then are dipped underneath the water, that is a picture of the death. And when they come up out of the water, that is a picture of the resurrection. When somebody's getting baptized, they are identifying themselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand that there is something else to baptism as well. Go, go to Matthew chapter number 3. 
Matthew chapter number three. And what I'm going to explain to you tonight, you know, I just want to show it to you from the Word of God. I, I've, I feel like this is probably one of the most unpopular things I preach, although the list of unpopular things I preach is growing every day. I'm learning. Uh, but, you know, I, I want to show it to you from the Word of God, and of course, you make your own decisions on this. But baptism not only identifies you with Christ, the Bible teaches that baptism identifies you with the person or the ministry that is performing the baptism. And today, I, you, I get a lot of you know, pushback on this, and I, I don't even know why, uh, but the Bible teaches it very clearly. Keep your place there in Matthew 3, but just go back just real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I want you to look at verse 2 again. 1 Corinthians 10, to remember, they crossed the Red Sea, right? Verse 1, they all passed through the sea, and then in verse 2, the Bible says and were all baptized, notice, unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And you would think, well, shouldn't they have been baptized unto God? Shouldn't they have been baptized unto the Lord? Isn't it God who parted the Red Sea? Isn't it God who brought them out of Egypt? Isn't it God who did it? But I want you to notice, they were baptized unto Moses because Moses, though he is a type and a picture of Christ in that story, but he was also their earthly leader. And I want you to notice that they used to belong to Pharaoh, and when they crossed through the Red Sea, now they were identifying themselves with their new leader, and it was Moses. And the Bible says there that they were all baptized unto Moses. And today you'll have people who say, well, it doesn't matter who baptizes you. We'll go to Matthew chapter 3, and I want you to notice that the Lord Jesus Christ did not seem to agree with that idea that it doesn't matter who baptizes you. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13, the Bible says this, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. To be baptized of him. To be baptized of who? Of John. And I want you to notice, look, nothing in the Bible is in there by mistake or just as filler because God, didn't, God needed to fill a verse there. He didn't really know what to put in verse 13, so he just kind of added that. Everything in the Bible is in there for a reason. And the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ specifically went to Gal- from Galilee to Jordan unto John specifically to be baptized of him. Look at verse 14. But John forbade him because John was a very humble man. And John said, no, notice what he says, saying, This is what John said. I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? John is saying, if anybody should be baptizing anybody, you know, you should be baptizing me. Look at verse 15. And Jesus answering said unto him, suffer. The word suffer means allow. He said, allow what? He's saying, allow me to be baptized by you, is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, suffer it to be so now. Say, why? Notice what he says. For thus it becometh us to fulfill, notice these words, all righteousness. You see that word righteousness? See the first part of the word righteousness? It says right. Righteousness means you're doing something right or correctly. Notice what Jesus said. Jesus said, I need to get baptized. He said, suffer it uh, so to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, John, if we're going to do this right, I need you to baptize me. And then notice the response. Then he suffered him. And I want you to understand this. 
At the time of Christ's baptism, there were many religious leaders that could have baptized him. He could have gone to a priest. He could have gone to a Levite. He could have gone to a lawyer, which was a, a spiritual position. He could have gone to a Pharisee. He could have gone to a Sadducee. He could have gone to the high priest himself, but he chose to be baptized by John. He came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. And when John, being a humble man, said, no, I don't want to baptize you, Jesus said, suffer it to be, uh, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. I just want you to say, well, why was it such a big deal for Jesus to be baptized by John? Here's why it was a big deal. Because Jesus wanted to be identified with John's ministry. See, if he would have been baptized by a Pharisee, he would have identified himself and aligned himself with the Pharisees who believed in a work salvation. If he would have been baptized by a Sadducee who don't believe in the resurrection, who don't believe in spirits and in angels and things like that, he would have identified themselves with that. He wanted to be baptized by John because he agreed with John's ministry, because John was preaching the proper gospel, because John stood in, in the place where the Lord Jesus Christ said, this is the man, this is the ministry, and the same way that the children of Israel were baptized unto Moses and they identified themselves with Moses, here the Lord Jesus Christ wanted to uh, be identified with John. Now let, let me just say a few things, and of course if you go on in the chapter there and the Lord gets baptized. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. You know, I preached this before and, and, and people literally, they accuse me of like, you want to rebaptize everybody or whatever. And here's the thing, I don't, I don't really care about your baptism, okay, number one, in the sense that I, you know, that's between you and God. You know, I want to help you do it right and do it scripturally. But and here's what you need to understand. I'm not saying that, you know, the person that baptized you has to believe every little thing that you believe. You know, you've got to test them on Daniel's 70th week. And you need to make sure they understand, you know, all the ins and outs of, of our movement and blah, blah. I'm not talking about that. But, you know, this is what I am talking about, and this is why people get upset at me for preaching this. Can you at least make sure that the person that baptized you was saved? Because today you've got, and you, literally people fight me on this, and they're like, it doesn't matter who baptizes you, as long as you were baptized, you know, in water. And well, look, it seemed like it mattered to Jesus. It seemed like it mattered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, and this is what I tell people. Okay, if it doesn't matter who baptizes you, then I can just, you know, get somebody saved. They want to get baptized, and I'll just, I can just take them down to the Catholic Church and have a Catholic priest baptize them, because it doesn't matter, right? I mean, just find some atheist and say, hey, can you baptize this guy? Because it doesn't matter, right? You know, just have some false prophet like Billy Graham baptize him, because it doesn't matter, right? Look, you know, and here's the thing. Most people say, like, well, no, I'd never. Would you accept a baptism from a Jehovah's Witness? Would you accept a baptism from a Mormon? Because here's what's funny. People say, well, no, I'd never accept a baptism from a Jehovah's Witness. Well, let me explain something to you. A Baptist who believes that you've got to repent of your sins to be saved is going to die and go to hell just as much as Jehovah's Witness is. There's no, there's no levels of, well, this guy is really unsaved, and then the guy that baptized me, he was unsaved but not as unsaved. That doesn't make any sense. They're either saved or they're not. They're either, you know, do, do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, look, I don't think I got that many harsh qualifications on who baptizes you. When people come to our church and they say, I got baptized, this is what I ask them. Were you saved before you got baptized? You know, no. Well, then you got to get baptized. Were you dunked in water? No, I was sprinkled. Well, then you got to get baptized. And, you know, were you baptized in a place where they at least believe the gospel right? No, I was baptized by a tongue-speaking Pentecostal. Then I'm sorry, we don't accept that here. you got to get rebaptized. Because let me explain to you something about tongue-speaking Pentecostals. They're not saved. 
Okay? And it does matter. It mattered to Jesus. They identified themselves with Moses. And again, I'm not preaching on baptism. I just want to show you that here we find that the children of Israel were baptized passing through the Red Sea, and they identified themselves with Moses. And here's the thing. If you don't want to identify yourself with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Catholic or a tongue-speaking Pentecostal, then, then don't get baptized in those areas. And realize that it does matter to some extent. And I'm not talking about, you know, because then people take it too far to where like, well, my fundamental Baptist pastor baptized me, and he was saved, but he was a Zionist. Okay, that doesn't, who cares, okay? Or he was pre-trib, do I need to get rebaptized? Don't ask me stupid questions, okay? You know, but if he's not saved, if he's not saved, at least find someone who's saved to baptize you. That's all I'm saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 3. Not only do we see the identity of, of baptism, but we also see the immortality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. The Bible says this, And did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock. I want you to notice the word rock there that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Did you see that? Now, we're talking about the Old Testament you know, nation of Israel. And I want you to notice that according to this verse, it was that rock that followed them. It was that rock that provided for them. And that rock was Christ. Go to the book of Psalms. Keep your place there in 1 Corinthians 10. If you open up your Bible, just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms. There's many verses I could show you on this. I'm just going to show you one for sake of time. Psalm 18, and look at verse 31. And you say, well, what does this prove? Here's what it proves. It proves the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. And Jesus was not created. Jesus was not born. You know, he was born in, in Bethlehem, but that's not when he, when he was, you know, he didn't begin to exist at that time. Even in the Old Testament, it was the rock, which is Christ, that was leading the people, and that was feeding the people, and that was providing for them and their needs. Psalm 18 and verse 31, the Bible says this, For who is God... Save the Lord. And the, you notice the word Lord there. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Jehovah. He says, who is God? Save. That word save there means except for Jehovah, except for the Lord. And then he says this. And who is a rock? Save our God. And if you study the word rock throughout the, the Bible, you'll find that there are two associations with the word rock. The rock often equals God, which is what we see here in Psalm 18.31. And the rock often equals the Lord Jesus Christ, which we saw in 1 Corinthians 10.4. And you say, well, what can we learn from that? Here's what we can learn from that. God equals the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is God. And He is the rock. And, the, and God is the rock. So again, we see here that Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was not just a prophet. Jesus did not come into existence. He is God. And we see just another verse here on the deity and the immortality of the Lord Jesus Christ because He was never created. He, he never came into existence. The Bible says that He is from everlasting. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. Look at verse 5. So we saw just, and this is all by way of introduction, we saw the identification and baptism and we saw the immortality of Christ Thirdly, and this is just all intro, but we see the intent of the examples. Because remember, this chapter is really about examples. Look at verse 5. He says, but with many of them, God was not well pleased. Talking about the children of Israel in the Old Testament. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things, notice what it says, were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they 
also lusted. So the Bible tells us here that these things, what are these things? It's the stories of the Old Testament, and he's going to specifically give us some stories here in a minute. They were given to us as an example that we should not lust after evil things. Look at verse uh, 11, just real quickly, skip down to verse 11. The Bible says this, Now all these things happened unto them, notice, for in samples. What is the word in samples? Just a different way of saying examples. And they are written for our admonition. What's admonition? Admonition is when you're being counseled or told, you know, you're being advised to do something. They're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And I want you to notice that what he does is he goes through between verses 7 and uh, 10 and 9, he gives us uh, four different Old Testament examples that are supposed to be for our admonition, and they're supposed to be that we would learn not to lust after evil things. And I want to Look at these examples closely, but like I said, it's going to take too long to go through all four of them in one night, so we're going to hit two of them tonight, and we're going to hit two of them next week. Notice verse 7 there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 7. Here's the first example. He says, neither, because remember he just said that these were given to us for an example. Now he's going to start to give us the example. He says, neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink, and rose up to play. So the first example, he gives us an example of idolatry, and he talks, and, and then he gives us this, this phrase, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now that's actually a quote from the book of Exodus. In fact, let's just go to Exodus. Go to Exodus. Uh, the quote comes from Exodus 32. We're going to look at the quote here in a minute, but before we do that, go to Exodus chapter 20, just real quickly. Exodus chapter 20. Here's the first bad example that he gives us to be able to learn for our admonition, for our learning, that we would learn to not lust after evil things, all right? The first example is the example of placing an idol before God. Because what does he say? He says, neither be ye idolaters. So he gives us this example of people who created an idol and placed it before God. Now, you need to understand that the primary application is to literal idolatry. And this would make sense for the church at Corinth, because remember, already earlier in the book, he's already dealt with the idea of idolatry. Later on in this chapter, he's going to talk about idols and what it means to eat things, sacrifice unto idols and all of that. We've already talked about that a little bit. He'll talk about it again. But you're in Exodus chapter 20. Look at verse 1. Now, Exodus 20 is a famous passage. It's the Ten Commandments. You're familiar with it. But I want you to understand that the Bible does teach that we as believers should not be partaking in idolatry. Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Look at verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. So that's your idol. Or any likeness of anything that is... Notice what he says. He says, to the likeness... The likeness is something that looks like, right? So he says, I don't want you to make a graven image, but I also don't want you to make anything that looks like anything that is, notice what he says in verse 4, in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not 
bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation to them that hate me. Now, let me just explain a couple of things about idolatry. And I don't want to get too far into this because I'm not preaching on this. But, you know, some people take the position that anything that is made to look like anything is automatically an idol. I don't necessarily take that position. And, you know, and I should probably just preach a whole sermon on that at some point, but I don't, I don't have time to get into that tonight. But let me just say this. If that's true, then in 1 Corinthians 10, we read of a story where Moses and, the, and God himself, you know, broke his own law. Because if you remember the story of the serpents, when the serpents were killing the people, Moses was commanded by God to make a brazen serpent. And if that's idolatry, then God just sinned, and Moses sinned, and the whole thing got messed up, all right? So I don't necessarily believe that anything that is created to look like an animal or whatever is an idol, but I do believe this, and, and here's where I, where I cross the line of, is this idolatry, is when there's something that's made, you know, a graven image, or in the likeness of things that are in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth, and... It has some sort of a religious purpose or religious connotation. Because he says in verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. And here's what you need to understand. Verses 4 and 5 are all the same commandment. Remember, it's called the Ten Commandments. And I don't know if you've ever taken the time to go through and, and line them up, but if you, if you separate verse 4 from verse 5, you're ending up with 11 commandments, all right? So you need to understand that 4 and 5 are all referring to the same commandment, all right? And, 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 I, get, and I know people don't, everybody doesn't believe that. I think there's people in our church that don't believe that. That's fine. I'm not trying to attack you. I'm just telling you, that's not where I stand, you know? And again, let me give another example. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had angels and cherubims that were crafted on there, and God commanded them to do that. So, was that an idol? Was that idolatry? I believe that an idol is when you create something, and it has some sort of religious connotation to it. You're bowing down to it. You're doing it for a religious purpose. With that said, you know, as Christians, I believe that we should try to avoid any type of graven image or likeness of anything in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth that we are using as a religious emblem, as a religious, you know, type of, uh, 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 of a thing. So, so, you know, number one, you know, crucifix, a cross with a, a, a graven image of someone that they say is Jesus, that's not something that believers should be having. That's not something that should be hanging on your wall. That's not something that you'd be having around your neck. You know, any idols like the Roman Catholic Church has or the Orthodox uh, Church has, that's not something that Christians should uh, have a part in. But let me, you know, take it even a step further. And this is how I apply it. You may apply it differently. But how about this? It's interesting to me that he says, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, right? And then Christians will take a piece of metal you know, and they'll form it into the likeness of a dove and they'll put it on the back of their car and they'll say, oh, it's because I'm religious. Well, look, a dove is something that is in heaven above. You know, is that something that we should be putting on our vehicles and saying, well, it's because I'm religious. It's because I want to show, you know, that, that, I'm, that I'm religious. Or he says uh, later in the verse, that is in the water under the earth. You know what Christians will also do? They'll take a piece of metal and form it into the image of a fish, which I think fish are under, you know, in the water under the earth. 
And then they'll put it on the back of their car or they'll put it on their wall or put it whatever and say, oh, well, it's because it's I'm religious. No, you know, that's not something that we as Christians should be associated. Our religion is not based on symbols, you know, and even crosses. You know, I don't know if you ever noticed, but you don't see a cross in this building. There's no cross on this pulpit, you know, and you say, well, what's wrong with the cross? There's nothing wrong with the preaching of the cross. There's nothing wrong with, you know, the, uh, you know, preaching the cross and talking about the cross. But, you know, the Bible tells us that we should not be making the likeness of things. And look, is a cross something that is in the earth beneath? Is a cross something? These are all images. And I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. If you, you know, look, I don't look at your vehicles. All right. Some of you are like, I got a cross, a fish and a and a dub on the back of my car right now. You know, I've got all three of those. I look, I don't know that if you do. All right. And I won't go in the parking lot. I'll give you time to remove it or whatever. So you don't have to be embarrassed. But look, these are all things that we as Christians should not be partaking in. Because the Bible says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the earth, in, in, in heaven above, or that, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And of course, look, you've got to make your own decisions and have your own standards and decide how far you want to take things. But the Bible says that these are not things that we should be having these religious emblems or you know, uh, images to represent things that are religious. And say, well, we're doing it for God. You know, we're doing it for, for Jesus. That's not something that we should be doing. Keep your place there in Exodus. We're going to come back to it. But go to the book of Ezekiel, all right? If you go towards the end of the Old Testament and you find the major books of the, of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, those big major books, towards the end of the book of, uh, of those major books, you have the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 14, and look at verse number 7. And, and let me just take it one more step and make it something else clear. Because something that our movement is becoming notorious for is trying to pin people against people or whatever. Look, I'm not saying that if a pastor has a cross on the back, I'm not saying they're the Antichrist, okay? That's their position, that's their business. You know, something we all need to figure out is that there's something beautiful about being an independent Baptist, which means that we don't have to run and check everything with the other people and the movement and I've got to approve. You don't have to approve anything by anybody, all right? If a pastor has a cross, who cares? Don't use, don't make my sermon into a clip and try to throw it in his face or whatever. I don't, I don't care. I'm just telling you, this is where we stand here at Verity Baptist Church, and people got to make their own decisions, all right? And they've got to decide. I, I don't want, that's not the point of this. If, and if someone wants to take it further and say everything, you know, everything is, is, is an idol, that little piece, you know, piece on the chess pieces, that's an idol or whatever, you know, because it's shaped like a horse. Okay, that's fine. You know, if you want to take it that far, that's, that's fine with me. I don't have an issue with that. Ezekiel 14. But let me say this. The passages are about literal idols, it, you know, actual molten images or metal that is formed into the likeness of something. But I want you to understand this. There is a such thing as having an idol that is intangible. You say, what are you talking about? Look at Ezekiel 14 and verse 7. Notice what the Bible says. For every one of the house of Israel, or of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, which separated himself from me, and setteth up his idols, notice what he says, in his heart. Do you see that? Setteth up his idols in his heart. Now, how do you set up an idol in your heart? Here's what you need to understand. Idols are not just physical, molten images. An idol has more characteristics than just that. And there can be an invisible idol 
or an intangible idol, or an idol that you just set up, like it says here in Ezekiel 14.7, in your heart. Now you say, well, what do you mean? Well, go, go to Exodus 32, because that's what 1 Corinthians 10 is talking to us about, right? 1 Corinthians 10 is teaching us, saying, neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That is a quote from Exodus 32. So let's look at Exodus 32, because remember, he's telling us this was an example or an example that we might learn to not lust after evil things or that it might be used to admonish us. So let's get some admonition from this passage and this story. And, and look, you, I can preach a whole sermon just out of this story, and I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to show you some highlights. But let's look at some things we can learn about idolatry from this passage. Some characteristics of an idol either literal or intangible, all right? Exodus 32, look at verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mount, this is when Moses went up to the mount. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and they didn't expect him to be gone that long. The people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not. That word want means no. He says, they say, we don't know. We want not what is become of him. Look at verse 2. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters. And I'm not, I'm not preaching on this tonight, but let me just go ahead and say it because we're right there. Every time you see a reference to a male having earrings in the Bible, it's always negative. You know, here, he's telling them, hey, break off the earrings from your wives, no problem with that, from your daughters, no problem with that. But then he says, of your sons. And keep in mind, they're doing this to go make a molten image. And also understand, these people just came out of spending 400 some odd years in Egypt, and the boys all came out looking like Egypt. And they got, you know, earrings in their ears. And it's always negative. You, you find the Philistines having earrings in their ears. It's never a positive thing. Look, even back in the Old Testament, God wanted men to stay out of their mother's jewelry box. All right? Go get you a toolbox and learn how to work. And, you know, it's, and today you got women who want to get into their daddy's toolbox and then you've got, you know, men that want to get into their mother's jewelry box, and it's all messed up, and we just need to, you know, preach the Word of God, and look, it's a negative thing. It's always a negative connotation when you see young men uh, wearing earrings. So, don't come to church with an earring, young man, please, all right? It's weird, and we're all going to look at you weird, and um, all of that. And of course, I, we won't look at you weird, but, you know, maybe we will. Verse 3, and all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron, verse 4, and he received them at their hand. Notice, and fashioned it with a graving tool. We're not going to read the whole story, but it's important for you to see that the Bible says that he fashioned it with a graving tool because later on, when Moses comes down and asks Aaron about this, he says, I just threw the gold in and this image came out. You know, isn't that how all, the excuse for a sin? Whenever you're, you're, you know, dealing with somebody saying, like, I don't know how that, it just happened. You know, I'm not sure how I ended up in that casino and spent all our, you know, money. It just, I was driving home from work. Next thing I know, all our money's gone, you know, and I'm at the casino. No, look, he fashioned it with a graving tool, all right? You don't fall into sin. You step into sin. You walk down into sin. You make plans to go down into sin. You understand that? 
You, you take specific steps to go down and do things that are foolish. Notice what it says in verse 4. After, that, uh, after he had made it a molten calf, that's your idol, and they said, notice what they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. So the first characteristic of an idol, either literal or intangible, is that the idol always replaces God. Notice, they brought this molten calf and they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now, did that golden calf bring them out of Egypt? The answer is no. The Lord, Jehovah God, brought them out of Egypt. He's the one that brought the plagues. He's the one that delivered them. But I want you to notice, a characteristic of an idol is that it replaces God. It removes God. And this is what I'm saying. You know, you say, well, we live in the United States of America. This isn't India. This isn't, you know, we're not, uh, we're not living in a place where idols abound. But you know what? There's a lot of people today that have idols in their hearts. There's a lot of people today that have made an idol out of the NFL. There's a lot of people today that have made an idol out of their jobs or out of money or out of the stock market. Because look, an idol is anything that you put before God. Some of you have made an idol of your families. Some of you have made an idol of your uh, children and of your wife or of your husband. And there's nothing wrong with loving your husband and loving your wife and loving your children. But whenever you put anything before God, you just created an idol. These be thy gods is what they said. Notice the second characteristic of an idol. Look at verse uh, 5. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now he's referring to the molten calf as the Lord. Verse 6. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought priest offerings, and the people, does this sound familiar? Sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That's quoted in 1 Corinthians 10, 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Verse 8, They have turned aside quickly out of the way. So the first characteristic of an idol is that it replaces God in your life. The second characteristic of an idol is that it leads you astray. It leads you away from God. It says in verse 8, They have turned aside quickly out of the way. Notice verse, go back to verse number one just real quickly of Exodus 32. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, and the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods. Notice what they said. Which shall go before us? So they were saying, we want a God that will go before us. We want a God that will lead us. We want a God that will replace our current God. We want a God, verse 8, that will turn aside, that will cause us to be turned aside quickly out of the way. So you say, well, how can I identify an idol in my life? Just ident- This is all you need to identify. Is there anything in your life that has replaced God and has led you away from God? That's why I say for some people, you know, it's the NFL. It's the Super Bowl. It's the Oscars. It's, it's money. It's a job. It's, it's, a, it's a habit. It's whatever. If there's anything that you put before God and you allow it to lead you astray from God, it doesn't matter if it's a physical golden image that you bow down. You've created an idol in your heart. And you should be admonished of the children of Israel and learn from their example. Look at verse 25, same chapter, Exodus 32. Verse 25, Exodus 32, 25. 
And when Moses saw that the people were naked, you got to ask, what is that about? You know, why are you doing that? But, of course, fornication was part of this. For Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And that's why we have that song, Who is on the Lord's side? comes from this passage. Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate uh, to gate throughout the camp. Notice what it says. And slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Neighbor, and the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. Do you see that? 3,000 people were put to death because of this sin of idolatry. Look down at verse number 35. I want you to notice just one more thing in the story. Verse 35, and the Lord plagued the people. So not only did they go out and physically killed 3,000 men. Then God also sent a plague uh, to the people because they made a calf, uh, because they made the calf which Aaron made. All right, now keep your place there. Uh, go, go back to 1 Corinthians 10. And uh, let, me, let me show you the second example. Remember, there's four examples in this passage. We're only going to go through two of them, and then we'll go through the other two uh, next week. But let me show you the second example. Verse 8, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 8. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. All right. Now, some of these passages are tricky in regards to trying to figure out what Old Testament story they are referring to. The second example and the fourth example are the hardest ones to pin down as far as what are they referring to. And let me give you the, the, the story that I believe 1 Corinthians 10.8 is referring to, but let me just give you, give you some things. A lot of people will, will try to connect 1 Corinthians 10.8 to 1 Corinthians 10.7. So they'll say that in verse 8, he's talking about fornication, and in verse 7, he's talking about uh, the fact that they committed uh, uh, idolatry, and they, uh, the people sat down to eat and to drink and, to rose up and rose up to play. Now here's what you need to understand. Verse 7 is definitely connected to Exodus 32. They, the, the passages are quoted. So 1 Corinthians 10, 7 is definitely referring back to Exodus chapter 32. Here's where the problem comes in. People look at verse 8 and they'll say, well, in verse 8 it says, neither let us commit fornication, because here's what you need to understand. In Exodus 32, they were committing fornication also. Remember, they rose up to play is a euphemism for that fornication. The Bible says that they were naked and all of that. There's other passages to prove that. People will look at that and say, well, wait a minute, because 1 Corinthians 10, 8 says, neither let us commit fornication, thinking that it is still talking about the story in Exodus 32, and it says, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and 20,000, uh, 20, they'll say 23,000 people died, according to this passage. In Exodus 32, it said that 3,000 men died, and they'll say, that's a contradiction in Scripture. Well, a couple of things to consider. Number one, I don't believe that chapter, verse 8 is referring to Exodus 32. I think in verse 8, he's already moved on to a different story that aligns himself, it aligns itself more with that 3 and 20 
thousand number. But let me, let's just go ahead and play the devil's advocate. Let's say that verse 8 is referring to Exodus 32 because when they made the molten calf, they were fornicating. You know, and they'll say, well, is that a contradiction? Here's what you need to understand. In verse 28, we read that 3,000 men died at the hand of the Levites who answered the call of Moses when he said, who is on the Lord's side, right? But we read in verse 35 that said that the Lord plagued the people. We're not told how many people died in that plague when he plagued them. See, Moses killed 3,000 of them or had 3,000 of them put to death. But then after that, God plagued the people. So it may be that 1 Corinthians 10, 8, if it is referring to Exodus 32, which I don't believe it is, but if it is, then that number of in that day fell 3 and 20,000 may be referring to that plague. I just want you to notice, no matter how you cut this thing up, there's not a contradiction. There's not a contradiction when there's a plausible explanation. And when it says that there was a plague, then look, we see in other plagues that that many people die and more. So there's no contradiction there when you come to it. But either way, I don't believe 1 Corinthians 10.8 is referring to the Exodus 32 passage. Let's look at it one more time. 1 Corinthians 10.8 says neither. I believe every time he says neither, he's bringing up a new story. So neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. All right, so what is that uh, story referring to? I believe that that is another account that we find in Numbers 25. Let's look at it. Numbers 25, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Because here's the thing, in Exodus 32, it's true that they were committing fornication, but the overwhelming, uh, um, you know, what's being highlighted in the passage is the golden calf. The fornication is just kind of quickly mentioned. But in 1 Corinthians 10.8, he says, neither let us commit fornication. In 1 Corinthians 10.7, he says, neither be idolaters. He was focusing on idolatry, so he went to Exodus 32. In 1 Corinthians 10.8, he's focusing on fornication. So I believe he's referring to Numbers 25, because Numbers 25 is a story about fornication, where the whole thing's about fornication. Let's look at it real quickly. I'm already running out of time, but let's look at it. Uh, Numbers 25, look at verse 1. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredoms. See that word whoredoms there? See the first part of the word whoredoms? It says whore. Now today people don't like you using that word. But look, that is a Bible word. Every word of God is pure, is what the Bible says. And the, God, the Bible uses the word whore in all sorts of places. And here is a word, and, and, I, and I want you to notice, here's a place where it's being used. Commit whoredoms with the daughters of Moab. What were they doing? Verse 2. And they called the people unto the sacrifice of their gods. Notice, in this passage, they're committing idolatry also, but the emphasis is on their fornication. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. Verse 3. And Israel joined themselves unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. Look at verse 6. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. 
Don't miss this, all right? Some of you, you know, you got to turn off the television and just read the Bible. It's real exciting, all right? He took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the men of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. What's going on here? Well, the children of Israel are fornicating. This is where Balaam you know, advertises the children of Israel to, 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 the, to, to the heathen. They're fornicating, and a plague comes. And the judgment of God, God comes. And I just want to show you just a couple of things about this. First of all, I want you to notice in verse 1 again, how God refers to fornication as whoredom. And listen, you know, no young lady, I would hope, would desire, you know, my goal in life is to be called a whore. My goal in life is to be characterized as a whore. You know, I don't think there's any dad in this room that says, you know what I want for my daughter? I want my daughter to grow up and be a whore. But you know what? Today, we think, we, we think of a whore as differently than what God thinks as, as a whore. Because you know what God considers a whore? A young lady and a young man is a whoremonger who commits fornication. They, you say, no, a whore is when they're like a prostitute. Or a whore is when they're, no, a whore is when you go to bed with someone that you're not married to. And you say, Pastor Mendes, why are you preaching this? Because I'm hoping to get the attention of some young people in this room who say, that's not what I want to be. I don't want to be a whore. I don't, and you say, I don't think you use that word. God uses that word. And you say, well, why does God use that word? Because I think God wants us to make sin exceeding sinful. And you know, you young men, your goal should be to walk down the aisle one day and get married and be pure and be a virgin. You young ladies, your goal ought to be to walk down an aisle one day and be pure and be a virgin and not be a whore. You say, well, what makes you a whore? When you fornicate, that's what makes you a whore. And I want you to notice that this is a big deal to God. God is upset about it. Look at verse 3. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God was mad about it. I want you to notice also that fornication is a big deal. Notice the response from Moses, verse 5. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. Moses commands again that the children of Israel, in Exodus 32, they were put to death for committing uh, uh, the sin of idolatry. Here they're being put to death for committing the sins of whoredom. But I want to show you what the true, I believe, what I believe is the true meaning of this passage. Obviously, there's lots of passages we could go to to condemn fornication, to teach that God desires that young men and young women be pure and virgin. There's lots of places we could go to. What's unique about this story is that what's highlighted is not just the fact that these people were put to death for committing fornication. What's highlighted is that the congregation of the children of Israel would not tolerate it. Notice verse 6. And behold, keep in mind, Moses just gave the command. And you got to think this is hard on Moses. Moses just gave the command. Everyone who's, who's partaking in this whoredom, put them to death. Everyone who's partaking in this whoredom, you know, slay them. Slay ye everyone his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. Look at verse 6. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman. And notice, in the sight of Moses. Moses just got done saying, everyone who's committing, who's joining themselves to be up here, put them to death. And this guy just in front of Moses, 
has his little girlfriend by her hand. Notice, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, notice, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Don't miss the picture. Here you've got Moses, the man of God, the leader of the congregation, the spiritual leader and the political leader, and the elders of the nation of Israel, and they are on their knees weeping and praying that God would forgive them for this terrible sin of fornication. And as they're sitting there weeping and praying, this young man just has his girlfriend by the hand, and right in front of them, right in their sight, he goes, notice verse 7, uh, he, 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 uh, verse seven. and when Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose up from among the congregation. You know what Phinehas said? Phinehas said, enough is enough. He said, you know what? It's one thing for you to sit there and hide your sin, but just to blatantly, openly, disrespectfully, you know, doing it in front of a man of God whose heart is broken. Phineas said, you know what? Notice, verse, notice what he does, verse 7. And when Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent, because they're in a tent, and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. I mean, he walks into this tent and he just takes a spear and just stabs them both through. You say, ah, that's kind of harsh, you know. You, you guys watch worse stuff than that on your, uh, your movies. You know what, this is praise the Lord. I wish somebody would make an action film out of this. Maybe it scares some young people from fornicating. You know, you know, what to God that your daughter was so afraid and your son was so afraid to fornicate because dad might just walk in, you know, and, and, and beat someone up, all right? And I'm not advocating, you know, people are going to sue me now. I'm not advocating killing anybody, all right? The woman threw her belly. Notice, but notice the response from God. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. Notice how God responded. God sends a plague, and as soon as Phineas does this, God says, okay, I like that. You know what God was looking for? God was looking for the leaders of the nation of Israel to not tolerate it. They couldn't really stop people from doing what they were going to do. But he didn't want it to be something that it was just accepted. Just, oh well, what are you going to do? Look at verse 9. And those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. Does that sound more like the 23,000 number from 1 Corinthians 10? And you say, well, 20 and 4,000 is still not the same as 20 and 3,000. Yeah, here's the key words in 1 Corinthians 10. It says that 20 and 3,000 died in one day. So it's probably 23,000 died in one day when this plague happened, and then another 1,000 died maybe the next day or a few days later. Uh, So again, there's no contradiction there. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5. Here's what I'm trying to say. Fornication was not tolerated in in the nation, the Old Testament nation of Israel, and fornication should not be tolerated in the local New Testament church. Now, I'm not saying that we should go around stabbing people, all right? That's not what I'm saying. Because, it, because in 1 Corinthians 5, we're told that we are to deal with it in a different matter. 1 Corinthians 5, look at verse 11. 1 Corinthians 5, 11, The Bible says this, But now I have written unto you, not to company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or, don't miss this one, an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away 
from among yourselves that wicked person. And look, we're not told, we're not living in, in a nation of Israel. We don't know, Moses was the political leader, and they were able to put people to death. And the nation of Israel put people to death for fornication. We don't have that power to put people to death. We don't live in the nation of Israel, so we don't follow those laws. But you know what? In our congregation, the Bible says that we should not tolerate fornication, and when it's found out of, we should kick those people out. We should put them away. We should remove them. We should not company with them. We should not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator. And let me go ahead and highlight it too. It says, if any man that is called a brother. We're not talking about a brand new believer that just walked in the door. We're talking about somebody who's had a time to develop a testimony, who's been here, you recognize them, you're calling them brother, you're calling them sister, you know what, and people have, you know, I preach sermons like this, I talk about this, and then just people blatantly, just, we, we moved in together, pastor, what are you going to do about it? It's like, we're going to kick you out, that's what we're going to do about it. And then they get all mad, oh, I can't believe you actually kicked this out. Do I look like I'm joking right now? Do I look like I'm just, you know, listen, young people, please listen to me. I'm not, I'm not up here, you know, just I couldn't figure out what to preach tonight, so I'm just going to harp on fornication, but when you move in with your girlfriend, it's going to be okay, no big deal. No, look, if, I, I'm not joking. I'm not kidding. This is what we believe. We do not tolerate it. When we find out that you are living in fornication, we'll throw you out! Because what he's teaching us is it shouldn't be tolerated. You say, why? To try to help these children. Realize that this, there are some sins we just don't tolerate. There, there are, you know, we can be gracious and we can be graceful and you are struggling and you've got, you know, things going on in your life. We want to help you and we want to pray for you. But there are some things we don't tolerate. Fornication is one of them. Idolatry is one of them. What's interesting to me, and we're, we're done. Go back to 1 Corinthians. Go to chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I preach these sermons, then I throw people out and people are like, I can't believe you actually threw them out. It's like, Why? Why can't you believe that? It's what we've said for like the last eight years. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Notice what he says. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee fornication. You see that? Flee fornication. It's interesting because there's two, there's two stories we dealt with, right? One had to do with fornication. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, flee, run from fornication. Look at 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 14. Last verse we'll look at tonight. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 14. Notice what he says. Wherefore, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, notice what he says, flee from idolatry. Isn't it interesting? We, we dealt with two stories. One had to do with idolatry. One had to do with fornication. And in 1 Corinthians, we're told to flee from idolatry and we're told to flee fornication. Why? Because look, these are, this is a big deal. These things are big deals. What can we learn from these passages? Well, number one, we can learn that we should not place idols before God. What makes something an idol? Anything that replaces God and anything that leads you away from God, that's an idol. If it replaces God, if it leads you away from God. Because in America, we don't worship a lot, you know, unless you're Catholic or something. We don't worship a lot of, you know, physical idols. But you can have an idol in your heart that you have put before God. You've put it before God. Some of you have put your jobs before God. Some of you have put sports before God. You put entertainment before God. If you put it before God and it leads you away from God, it's an idol. And when it comes to fornication, you know what? God hates it. God is not for it. 
It's not, a, it's not something that's just a small sin. It's a big deal. It's a big enough deal for God to have 24,000 people put to death or killed as a result. And you know what? We should not, be, we should not tolerate it. And listen to me, you parents. And I, I'm thankful some of you have talked to me about these things, and, and I'm glad that we have. But look, you shouldn't tolerate it. Say, well, my, my adult children, you know, they're not saved. Or they didn't, you know, they're not walking with the Lord. That, that's fine. You know, that's between them and God. But you know what? Don't let them be shacking up at your house. Walking with a spear, I'm not saying to stab them, just scare them, you know. Walking with a spear, uh, quoting uh, the, the story of, uh, that we just read, you know. Have Alexander Scurby playing the story we just read. You walk in with a spear and say, we're not doing that in our house, all right. We should be, it's just, just, there's some things we cannot tolerate. And fornication is one of them. Let's bow here to have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for allowing us to be able to study these Old Testament passages and learn from them and be admonished uh, by them. And Father, I pray that you